what I describe to other people is that learning to meditate from a book is like learning to ride a bike from a book or a bicycle. Um, it's hard because you follow the words, but nobody's there to guide you. Nobody's there to say, you know, breathe it in slowly and pause, breathe it back out if you're distracted. So it took me a long while and I didn't know, by a long while I mean six to nine months, and I didn't know if I was doing it at all properly or well, but what I did find it was helping me ease the stress associated with working in the business, and that was good enough for me. I'm Julie Clare, and this is the podcast Creative at the Wheel. Artists and creative professionals thrive in unconventionality. They reinvent themselves and find their way through impossible situations. Here, we get to have deep dive conversations on their adventures. Let's jump in. Today, my guest is Martin Stepek from Hamilton, Scotland. Martin has been a high achieving business leader in Scotland. He has also been a high level champion of the arts as a healing agent for struggling and toxic business culture. Uh, But in 1988, Martin picked up a book by chance in a bookstore that changed his life, The Dalai Lama's The Art of Happiness. Since then, he has been deeply exploring meditation and mindfulness and has found new ways of bringing mindfulness into all that he does in the world. Before COVID, his free weekly mindfulness class in his hometown of Hamilton, Scotland, was the largest of its kind in Britain with regular attendance of over 100. Once COVID hit and he had, um, like many of us, uh, was experiencing lockdowns, uh, people weren't meeting in person, Martin went online and for 15 months until June of 2021, he hosted a daily mindfulness experience on Facebook Live with as many as 3,000 people attending at times. He called this grand experiment 10 for Zen. Martin has published six books and innumerable articles on mindfulness and was the UK's first regular columnist on the subject, writing weekly for Scotland's major newspaper, The Sunday Herald. He has also published five volumes of poetry on a broad range of themes. And let's jump in. Hi, Martin, welcome. Hi, Julie, it's lovely to be here. Ah, lovely to be here indeed. And you are sitting in Hamilton in your a room in your house, and I'm in New Mexico in a room in mine. And um, I love that we can have this kind of connection. I know we met by a mutual friend who also brings her art form of theater into business. And now we get to talk to you. So I'm very excited about this. Thank you. Um, I know that you have lots on the resume that I did not share with people because, frankly, it's almost overwhelming. You have done a lot. Um, But let's jump into the art. I'm curious. You've been a businessman. You grew up in a family business, I believe. Uh, When did you first get your taste of the power of the arts? Yeah, it's interesting. What we call primary school, which I think you're call elementary school. Um, I enjoyed painting and art. My Aunt Frances, who actually lived in the States, in Illinois, was a Montessori school teacher and she owned a school. And that's a very practical, hands-on form of early years learning. So every summer she came over and she would get out the paints and the pencils And I come from a big family, one of 10 siblings. 
So we were almost like a, a classroom in, our, in ourselves, um, just playing beautifully imaginatively with colour and stones and charcoal and things, anything that we could get our hands on. I get it. Now, did you grow up with, was this just something you did or did you grow up with dreams of being an artist? No, I never thought about being an artist. I actually thought when I was about nine or ten and I started reading children's encyclopedias that I would really like to be an archaeologist, which is not that far removed, I think, from being an artist. It's the idea of, it was the beauty of ancient art that really drew me there. And paleontology, the whole idea of the Paleolithic era and cave paintings, they just struck me as awesome. And around that, in the wider context of Greek and Norse and Roman mythology, so the whole thing was about storytelling and through images. Um, so, but never thought about being a professional artist. I didn't know such a thing existed, but I just like making things, I guess. No, I got it. Uh, and I'm wondering, did you always think, was your, I think it was your father's family business, did you always knew you would take a part in that? Or was that um, a surprise when you started working for the family business? Which was a big business, by the way, in Scotland. A <laughs> very big yeah, business. Yeah, it's, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short, as short as I can. My mum and dad met. Um, my dad was a refugee from Poland in the Second World War. His mother died of starvation. And my mother's family were a coal mining family. Who The father um, died when my mum was young. So they came from both very difficult backgrounds. They met and they started this family business together. Um, my mum knew finance and my dad knew how to repair radios and televisions. And so that's how they started. Um, by the time I was born, the business had been going for about five or six years and was very successful even then. So they had gone rapidly from poverty to being pretty wealthy. And we were, we, I don't know if in the States you have this phrase, press ganged, which basically means forced um, into working as slave labour as a child um, in your own family business. <laughs> so at the age of nine, I think, I did my first day's work in the family business, all the way through school, high school, and then on to university. But I hated the removal of my freedom and my free time. Um, so I had the opposite feeling. I didn't feel that I didn't feel any encouragement or force to join the family business full-time, and I didn't want to. I wanted to experience the world. Um, but that, so the best laid plans. Definitely, but you did explore the world, right? I do want to talk about how you started bringing arts in, but did, didn't you do some traveling? Did you travel before you joined the business, or how did the timing of all this work, your, your desire for freedom and the world and the, the business? Yes, um, again, as briefly as I can. I, so I went to law school, got a law degree, um, and then a postgraduate diploma in, in legal practice. But I didn't want to become a lawyer. At the same time, I was playing soccer at a high level in Scotland, and I smashed my knee in an injury during a game. And that ended my sporting options, if you like. So not knowing what I wanted to do, having this law degree, but didn't want to be a lawyer. I was quite interested in the sporting side, but that was gone now. So I told my parents I would go away, 
travel around Europe for six months and have a clear mind, a clear direction, and then come home and do it. And I stayed away for four years and visited virtually all the continents and um, came home and still didn't know what I wanted to do. So the family business became a bit more appealing at that point. That makes sense to me. And and how long was it before, in, when you're in the family business, that you um, started noticing that, um, you know, the culture wasn't really healthy and, and you were looking for ways of healing? Because I, I know we talked... And that was uh, a big part of your experience, I think, with the business and and how that formed you as a person. But um, how can you bring us into that a little bit? Yes. So I, um, I, I've two of my siblings have died in, in the last couple of years. Um, my younger brother from cancer, age fifty-seven, and my elder sister, age sixty-seven, um, both of whom I miss dearly. But we are part of a tenfold sibling group and we're very, very close emotionally. Um, But what I found was that when we started working together in the business and there was about six or seven of us working in the business and all 10 of us shareholders in the business. So these things started getting in the way of the family love, if you like, Um, the family togetherness and unity because people were starting to have different views about the direction of the business, who should be the next leader. And there was no greed or no selfishness, no real egos at stake. It was just genuine differences of opinion. But that then made started making me feel that the business was being successful. So in one level, yes, tick the box, that's going well. But I was losing the friendship and the informal love and togetherness of my own sibling group. And at the same time, I was thinking, I'm good at business, but it's not really me, or this type of mainstream business was not really me. So that was all going through my head almost immediately, um, within months, I think, of me joining the business. Wow, and yet you stayed with it for a while. When did you when did you first start looking for ways to to help it or to heal it or to make it better for the family, given it was in yeah, business no. together? Yeah, I think it was firstly for me. Um, I felt unhappy in the business. Yeah, but I knew it was working from a family position, my own family, you know, financially. And I was good at it, and I loved my colleagues, I loved the customers, so culture was great. But something was telling me that it's, it wasn't me. That's not who I was. And that's when I got to look in the bookshop and found the, the Dalai Lama book. Um, and I grew up in a Catholic background, stopped believing in that religion and in God about age 12 or 13. And... I think after that, I don't know how universal this is, but I think a lot of people find that they're searching unconsciously for a substitute or a replacement, um, a certainty of philosophy, purpose, meaning. And I certainly was, and I wasn't finding it in the business. Um, And I started finding it in the, the studies of Buddhism. Martin, you've, you've got to share with us the story of how you found that book, 
Um, I also just want to thank you for how honest and clear you speak. I think many of us that I interview myself and people that I interview in, in this Creative at the Wheel podcast have this experience that they're not completely um, held or sold or, or met in strictly the business or their work life. So they have to get creative about it. Um, so I'm, anyway, I'm curious what happened, how you found that book since you were kind of searching, but not necessarily yeah, yeah on that path yet. So I got married um, in 1988 to my still wife. Um, and we had two kids, 1991 and 1995. And so I started looking at the books. Um, we, sorry, every year we went to a bookshop before our summer vacations. And um, I was looking for actually a book about the internet because it was such a new thing. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine now that there never being an internet, but this was at a time when the internet was barely begun. Yeah, 1988, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I started looking at um, books about that I, the IT side of things. And out the corner of my eye, I saw this bright orange thing. I didn't know what it was. I looked around, and it was a promotional display for this book by the Dalai Lama. Um, and I went over to it, um, sceptical, probably arrogant. Um, and it was by the Dalai Lama and Howard Cutler. And I didn't know him at all at the time, but I let, read the blurb at the back, and this book called The Art of Happiness. And at the back, it explained that Cutler was a psychologist. And I thought, that's really interesting. A uh, religious leader, as I perceived him at the time, and a psychologist, what would they talk about together? Um, because my stereotypical view of Buddhism at the time was, you know, what we see in the, the images this serene Indian-looking man, cross-legged, meditating. I didn't know what meditating actually meant. I had the kind of Beatlesque idea with the Maharishi, um, but I had no idea. So I flicked through the books very sceptically, thinking, hmm, I don't even want to go here because it's religion. Um, and I flicked through it, and I started reading about neuroscience and the ability to manage your mind and manage your emotions and clarity of purpose and things. And I just thought, this is way more interesting than I expected. And so I bought it and I read the book even before we went on our holiday. Um, and I reread it and reread it. And as I mentioned to you when we first chatted, you know, I underline books. Um, I use published books almost like workshop notebooks and almost the entire book was underlined everything seemed relevant to me and it was a, a massive eye-opener did you immediately start to meditate or how did that happen how did you... yeah what i describe to other people is that learning to meditate from a book is like learning to ride a bike from a book or a bicycle um it's hard because you follow the words but Nobody's there to guide you. Nobody's there to say, you know, breathe it in slowly and pause. 
breathe it back out if you're distracted. It, so it took me a long while, and I didn't know by a long while, I mean six to nine months. And I didn't know if I was doing it at all properly or well. But what I did find, it was helping me ease the stress associated with working in the business. And that was good enough for me. So I found by chance um, that there was a Tibetan Buddhist group teaching in the nearby town of Motherwell, which is a beautiful name for a um, for a town. Sure is. Um, yeah. So Motherwell is only two or three miles from, from where I lived. And I went with real trepidation to one of their open classes. It's one thing learning a strange new way of being on your own in a book in your spare time. It's another thing going to join a group with other people who you don't know. And I, I went along and thinking, oh, what's this going to be like? And it was awesome. Um, the Buddhist nun, I didn't know there were such a thing as Buddhist nuns, um, but she came and I thought, oh, right, that's interesting. And she talked a little bit about universal compassion and that struck a chord with me. And um, then she guided us in a practice and I had never, ever felt so peaceful in my life up until that moment. Um, astonishing. And so as I came out of the session, because that was my first ever guided meditation. Um, and as I came out of it, I thought, I don't care if all of this is a lot of rubbish, if it's all completely unreal, it works for me and that's good enough. So I started after a few weeks and um, being in that group, started a, a more serious um, monthly residential weekend um, series of events and did that for the next five years. So wait, when you first did the, um, with the Tibetan nun, the meditation, how long did, was that first experience? Was that like half an hour or was it more like an hour? Probably no. I mean, the whole thing was about an hour and a half. Yeah. But that included the talk. So the session itself would be probably around a half hour. I can't remember exactly now. And after mm -hmm. and after a few weeks, you started doing a monthly residential, and that was all weekend. Yeah. Wow, that's Friday. a pretty big jump. Yeah. Yeah, I think though that firstly I was hungry for clarity and purpose, and. I've got a lot of weaknesses, but one of my strengths is I learn quickly and I, I can, I've got a good instinct for what's good for me and what's not good for me. And this was good for me and I wanted to not waste time because by that time I was about coming up for about 40. Um, and I thought, I need to get into this and understand um, more deeply what it's about. And if there's any flaws in it, I want to understand the flaws so I can then rework it to my own understanding and knowledge. And because I was always of the view that any philosophy, any book, I'm pretty well read, um, so is not there as a follow this religiously, but there is a guide and you can start to use it and adapt it. To, to suit your own and your own understanding. I get it. How, how did that work for you? Finding really what I hear is you finding your own way with meditation, not as a follower, but as a real um, 
I guess, seeker or looking for alignment. Yeah. And yeah, how did, how did that go? Did you have to change much about it? Or did you, did you enter into the world of leadership with meditation quickly or what, what, how did that all go? It was a bit of both. I, I reflected deeply on everything I was being taught and everything I read. I mean, by literally filling notebooks with my own thoughts on it and then correcting my own thoughts and then saying, no, no, I was wrong with that. They're actually right. So it was it was almost like a living journal stroke learning process. And the things I came away with that I didn't like were possibly things that were that annoyed me a little bit about my Catholicism as a child. Why do they have to wear robes? Mm. 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, I understood, yep, everybody was wearing robes and they were just wearing a colour of robes so that people could identify which group they were part of. But fast forward 2,000 years, you know, people should be wearing T-shirts and jeans or a suit or something like that. Um, so the, and, and I don't think that's a, a minor point. It's about things starting to get too traditional and we don't change the culture. You know, it's 2,000 years old. They used to wear a funny hat in their head, so we still wear a funny hat in our head. And I think that was getting away from the original teachings. So I didn't like the ritualistic parts of it and the overly formal aspects. I didn't like the definition of karma being taught as almost like a rule of science. If you think A and do B, then C will happen at some future time. I much prefer the more scientific view of everything is cause and effect. And generally speaking, if you try to do something good, the likelihood is that good will result and more good ripples will go on ad infinitum into the future. Um, but I didn't like trying to be pinned down. I like my signs. I like to see the evidence behind. And I didn't find that karma had that. The other thing I didn't that related to that was rebirth or reincarnation. I just didn't see that as being in any way scientifically plausible. So I guess when, very much to my surprise, five years into the ongoing program, um, I was asked if I wanted to become a teacher of this Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, psychology and ethics. And I reiterated that I didn't believe this part, I didn't believe that part. And the head of the order said, that's okay, you still have to teach it, but then tell people you don't believe it and hold an honest discussion about it. And my immediate thought was, well, the bishop in the church wouldn't have said that. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but don't you so love tolerant. that? They didn't say keep that out of the room. You know, they didn't say that. They said teach it, but then bring it in. Yeah, and to be honest, apart from the big, the big metaphysical question of whether there's a creator, a god, in the first place, um, but if I had found the priests and the nuns and the bishops in the Catholic church and in the schools I went to being that open I might not have walked away from it 
because the openness and the tolerance and the understanding that other people believe different things from you and that that's okay, that's, that to me is a, a fundamental principle of understanding humanity. Well, that's why we're friends now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. Uh, don't make me leave it outside the room. I'm not trying to crush you. This is just something, I, yeah, a genuine question here, right? A genuine uh, uh, dissent that doesn't... Anyway, I love it. I love this story. What, and where did you go? Did you start teaching in that way? Is that How, how do we start bridging that part to now, uh, to when you started teaching a class um, at the university in Hamilton? Or it's a school in Hamilton. Yes. Um, so I was, first of all, because I had a business background, which is very unusual in, say, Buddhist centres in Scotland or even Great Britain generally, and certainly in those early days, um, the, I was asked by the head of the order in Scotland if I would reach out to business people um, because I was well-connected and start to teach them a weekly class in Glasgow, in Scotland. Um, and I started doing that, and it was very successful, lovely response from people. A lot of business people are themselves questioning, you know, their own purpose and that there may be something more than just making money. Um, and a lot of business people are stereotyped as being narrow-minded that way, and I don't find that true. So I started doing that, but within a year or so, I felt a little constrained by having to stick to the classic Buddhist teachings, because in the last three or four years before then, I'd also started studying the pretty new, at the time, scientific research. And this was coming out from the States primarily, uh, via John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness. And Kabat-Zinn and others, you know, doctors, neuroscientists, psychologists, were starting to practice various types of Buddhist practices, but primarily Zen, I think, uh, from the Japanese emigres to, who came over um, after the war from Japan. And they were teaching um, this very disciplined, and simple living form of, of Buddhism called Zen. And Kabat-Zinn had been studying with them and being a doctor, he thought, this works for me, I wonder if it would work for my patients. And he did some research with it, properly scientific, um, so that it would the results, good or ill, would be, be publishable in a, uh, an academic scientific journal. And he did that, I think it was in 1979-80. But I only got to know about it at the turn of the millennium. And I was fascinated and delighted to see that there was research being done um, on the benefits of meditation, or particularly mindfulness meditation. And so I went to the head of the order and said I would like to go my own way and do a secular version. And he was all for it. Um, he thought that was a good thing for Scotland, a good thing for the communities. So I just took a deep breath and jumped in and started a new class. 
Um, and because, again, I had a lot of good contacts and connections through not just business, but social enterprises as well, um, I found a, an audience, not a huge audience, but a fairly sizable one that I could go to and from which I could build um, more and more classes. And I'd been doing that for about five or six years, but always in my heart, I wanted to do a free class in my hometown. It was mm. just those two things, giving back to the community that basically welcomed my father um, from the war, um, because he went through an indescribable painful experience of being sent to Soviet labour camps with his mother and his two younger sisters. Um, they were so close to death so often, um, and so many members of their family back in Poland were killed. And so this young guy in his early 20s, my father, um, after the war, couldn't go back to Poland, um, had lost everything. And the people of Scotland um, took him in and welcomed him. And so I always felt, he always felt so grateful to the people of Scotland, and especially the people near Hamilton where he lived. Um, and I felt this was an opportunity for me to pay back, in essence. What a story, what a beautiful context to set for us. I so appreciate that. I also hear the the, the large spirit of your family from the large size, but also the knowledge of where you've come from and where you're, you're you know, what your parents had been through to be, to just be there. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. so, and, and would you say at that point, uh, mindfulness is, I mean, I heard you saying it was like a secular version of meditation or how would you put that? Um, yeah, a secular scientific version. Now, that then begs the question, <laughs> was the Buddha secular himself or was he religious. Um, and from my studies, I think the Buddha was essentially a prototype psychologist, social activist, um, and compassionate teacher. I don't think he intended to found a religion, certainly. I don't even think he intended to found a philosophical way of living. I think he just worked out through trial and error, and his own incredible intelligence, that we have all these automatic negative emotions that we now know are genetic in origin and have evolved over millions of years, and that we can learn to manage these, and not just manage these, but dissipate them. And he did that through his own genius. And then, because of compassion for others, he started teaching others and said, this stuff works. I'm paraphrasing one of the greatest people of all time. But um, that's essentially what he said. I have found a way to be content and free from all these negative reactions and angst moments in life. And I can teach you how to do it too. And I think that's a beautiful purpose. God, it's so beautiful. Um, when I listen to you speak it, <laughs> it really is. I, can I ask you what, um, I wanted to go back to something when you refer to some of these emotions as being, we know that they come 
from genetics and I through um, generations and a long period of time. Is that known? I mean, that's I, I haven't had it so um, certainly put like that. I mean, I haven't heard it so certain. Certainly, I know we inherit genetically and emotions included. Um, but I guess is that part of one of the premises there of meditation of what it breaks up. From my perspective, looking at it from a scientific point of view, so all human beings have a variety of emotions and we seem to have much the same um, spectrum of emotions from good to ill. It might be different in some people as individuals to others and it might be different in some cultures. Now, what the branch of psychology called evolutionary psychology has put across as a theory and I think with a lot of evidence behind it is that these emotions which come from the amygdala the part of the brain so fight or flight right so anxiety hatred anger rage irritation impatience boredom all these sort of stuff that we have to try and cope with in our own head these things must have evolved over millions upon millions of years. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be with us. Now, because we can't fly just by flapping our arms because we haven't evolved to be able to do it. But birds can. And similarly, I don't know if birds can become anxious or if birds can reflect back on yesterday and think it was a great day. So they haven't evolved certain mental traits that we've evolved. So I think we have evolved all of the traits, good and ill, so kindness, love, right through to hatred and bigotry and prejudices. And the, the fundamental aspect of the negative ones was about survival. You're living in, say, the Stone Age. There's a tribe two miles away. There's wild woolly mammoths or tigers out there. The world is a dangerous place. So what helps? It helps if you can run fast, which is fear. Um, it helps if you can run fast towards them and be violent, which is anger and, and violence. So these things helped our antecedents um, survive. And we've still got the programs in our head for those things. And their automatic reactions, right? Um, well, I, li I, I like hearing it in this. In you know, uh, thinking of it being evolutionary psychology, I just and and I'm thinking somehow I'm going to segue, but I'm I'm picturing this understanding, scientific understanding of meditation and maybe mindfulness, right? And you've been practicing more within the Tibetan Buddhism. Now you're going more what you're saying secular, and you're going to teach this class, and you always wanted to do something free. And that was this class, right? And then was it, so there you are doing that. Partly what I hear is this is the creative at the wheel part is that you're kind of recreating your relationship or your, or the interest in it seems to be uh, a new, you know, it stays fresh or a new, like you're aware of, would you say that's true? You're aware of where your interest really is at any given time and you'll shift to meet it. I think you're absolutely right in terms of the shifting. I think, and you see this also in the Buddha's teachings, um, and every good teacher, is 
the teaching doesn't stand still. What one person needs is maybe not the same as what another person needs. And obviously, there's the benefits of science now. We get more and more research and findings. And so you can put the findings, the research findings, through the filter, if you like, of your own experience of practicing mindfulness and teaching it. And you start to realize that maybe for some people, the breath, for example, is not necessarily the best place to focus on because a person may have respiratory problems mm -hmm. or the person might just find it uncomfortable or scary mm -hmm. to notice their breath for the first time. So what can you do? Well, you can actually notice your feet on the ground. You can notice your hands resting on top of one another. You can notice the clothes on your back. It's physical touch. Or you can go to the sound of a bird outside singing and it's all the same thing. It's all just focus. Can you keep your attention elsewhere? And if you get distracted, can you notice you're being distracted and gently let it go and take your attention back to where you want it to be? So in a sense, that's learning as you go. You start to find that, for example, I've taken a few sips of water since we started speaking. And each time I take a sip of water, I almost mentally switch off from you and switch my attention to the drinking the water to feeling the beauty of soothing thirst in my mouth. And that then, to me, also adds a, a second deeper layer of experience because I appreciate now every time I take a sip of water that I'm getting that from a tap and the water is purified through processes maybe 10, 20 miles away and that's keeping me alive. And isn't that something to be grateful for? Now, nobody taught me any of that. That was insights. I do. I hear it. I also, I want to, I'm going to interrupt you. First off, I had the best two cups of tea that I've had in a podcast before, just now listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And the second is that, uh, uh, I am hearing the room for uh, individual uh, epiphanies, insight, and I would even call it creativity, reimagining, uh, reinvolving, and engaging in the practice. Uh, and I want to jump, and I love this. This is why I really wanted to talk with you. To me, you're bringing uh, perspective. Um, it's so full-bodied that I just enjoy listening to you. So, but I want to, I want to jump to, there you are. Uh, it's COVID. You've had this, you're doing what you wanted to do. You have this free class as to your local community, and then you can't meet anymore in person. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. And then you somehow reinvent this and you go online. Um, what, what was the, what's the surprise or the joy of that when you look at that, you actually went online with this thing that at that point wasn't, was new for you. You weren't Mr. Meditating Online guy. No, it's it's interesting. We've, we've been doing some webinars online, but for organizations. Um, so I was aware of the process, but I wasn't aware of the specific one that we, we got around to using, which was Facebook Live. My daughter works for a an online travel company and her boss, the owner, um, was doing monthly chats with the customers 
on this thing called Facebook Live, which I hadn't heard about. Um, and I started listening in on them. And he's a young, brilliant young guy. And, and I thought, this is really good. It's great to be able to be so direct with your own customers. And so I was aware of that. And then COVID hit and the class, which had been running for nine years um, every week um, in Hamilton, um, had to close um, because everything was shut down in late March in 2020. And I knew that quite a lot of the people who were attending um, my classes suffered from anxiety, depression, uh, bereavement. And it wasn't that they were so dependent on me that it was like a crutch that wasn't helping them heal, but it was helping them get there. And I thought, I can't just stop. So it struck me that what my daughter's business was doing was a way forward. So I had to learn pretty quickly and learning as I was going along. So the first few were clunky. Yeah. But I decided in, in conjunction with um, asking the, the local people um, when would suit them best because this was all new to them as well because right. nobody had ever been in a lockdown before and asked them when would suit them best and they basically said roughly coffee time in the morning which is about 11 o'clock here I don't know how it is in the States um, and maybe after dinner in the evening so I thought okay quarter past 11 quarter past 8 let's do that and I just started doing it I had no idea if anybody would turn up um, and so I was doing it twice a day and it proved to be successful and I ad-libbed every session and sometimes complete silence, sometimes talking about noticing the peace in a breath, sometimes talking about imagining hearing sounds and enjoying the sounds and did, so on and so on. Would you, when and you said then, you, you did it kind of so, without prep, does that mean you didn't, you, did you contemplate before or did you really let it be completely in the moment, whatever was going to show up? It, it was completely in the moment. And that's the way I have taught almost from the beginning, not right from the beginning, but once I got the feel of me being absorbed in practice, all I was really doing when teaching or not when teaching as a talk, when doing the practice, I was just doing what I normally do by, by myself out loud for others. So if, for an example, so if I breathed in just now, I can feel in the tip of the nostrils a freshness and a clarity. And when I breathe out, it's very quiet and it's peaceful. Now, when I'm doing this in my own that's the words that are in my head, or if not words in my head, that's the image or the feel. And all I was doing was saying, okay, when you breathe in, now this is to people who, for whom it's quite new. So I'm actually talking them through it. Notice the in-breath, notice how fresh and clear it is. And if you slow down the breath, it becomes fresher and clearer and it lasts longer and so on. So it's essentially guiding them to my inner experiences just verbalized out loud. I get it. And, and I just think, uh, you know, sharing our experiences and inviting people in to find their own, but also to guide. I, I that's, that's what I love to do with the painting. When I hear you doing with the meditating, I have to tell you, I did, I have 
sat in on some of your Facebook lives, but only um, a tiny bit. And I want to go back through and experience some of those with you. I know that they're still there, right? So people can go back yep. and, um, and you did it for 15 months, twice a day. And so yep. we, we can also tune into those now if people want to, um, if they're kind of scared of meditation, I think a lot of people have gotten so anxious, it's actually hard for them to meditate right now. I think that would be a great mm -hmm. way in. Do you, um, what was your biggest gift of that for you? What do you see as a, even a creative experience of going and doing that? What was the big gift for you personally? I think the continuity of it. I think um, I counted once and I we've done over eight, I did over 850 sessions in that 15 month period. And that was a deep connection to a lot of people, including to an awful lot of people who I'd never met before and have still never met. And the sense that I had helped people at a critical time in their lives and felt good. I'll, I'll share a little story if I may. Um, in my live classes in Hamilton, um, it was drop-in, so people didn't need to book. And so sometimes I got to know people, sometimes not so much. So a young lady in her 30s started coming around August, about maybe seven or eight years ago, and came for about six or seven weeks, stopped coming, that's fine. Then I got an email from her on Christmas Eve that year, and she reminded me who she was, and I remembered her. And small talk about Christmas, and then she hit me with two paragraphs that will live with me forever. And she said, you saved my life, by the way. In October, I had a noose around my neck and I was about to kick away the chair when suddenly I was mindful. I noticed what was going on. So she put the chair, she took her noose off carefully because the chair was unbalanced and threw the chair against the wall in anger. And then she wrote, I would have deprived my children of their mother they're twins, they're only two. And that's still hugely emotional for me because like the COVID sessions, that makes me understand that regardless of what else I do, good or ill, that was a life worth living because it affected someone in a profound way. And it's the only way I can put it. Oh, it's a beautiful story. My goodness. Um, I can see um, where that would give you that feeling, like um, something had really happened through you that meant, means a lot. Yeah, not mm. to you and to her and to them. Yeah, and to complete strangers. That's yeah. the other thing is this wasn't, you know, helping a friend or anything. Yeah. And it's just... Ripples again, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, cause and effect. You put something out there and sometimes something really good happens. And I think that's part of the great magic and mystery of creativity um, and arts. Absolutely. And... Um... We just have a couple minutes. I, I wanted to just ask you, you did that for 
15 months. You did it for, you said eight years, nine years at the school? Nine, nine, nine years at the college in Hamilton and yeah, yeah 15, 15 months. 15 months, yeah. And, and are you, like a lot of us, did you get kind of tired of Zoom and taking a break? But um, I know for me, I still teach online, but I, I also make sure to, um, you know, I really watch how much I am online, how many classes I do and stuff. So I don't um, get burnt out. I got a little fried there after about four months and COVID of going so strong into uh, doing all the painting online. So with you now, are you uh, taking a bit of a break? Because I know the Zen for 10 is what we called that, the, the Facebook Live twice a day gatherings. Uh, and we'll put that in the liner notes um, so that people can go back and look at that and, and take part retroactively but what about you now what what are you are you having to pull in or where do you find yourself now yes that's a really interesting um, point I didn't feel tired at the time I decided to stop which was the end of June this year but when I stopped I noticed how tiring it was because this was seven days a week this wasn't just weekdays um, so this was every single day for 15 months, twice a day. Um, and it was, in a low-level way, draining me. Um, and when it ended, I just felt, I felt the benefit of the absence of a deadline twice a day, you know, of a, of a fixed point I where do. I had to do something yeah. twice a day. And bear in mind that that's, the second one of those each day was in the evening. This was family time. And the family were really great in saying, you've committed to this, yeah, go and do it. But that meant they couldn't do certain things in the house because I was doing a mindfulness session, which requires complete silence. You know? um, so they were like whispering in all the rooms, you know, or, <laughs> or going on tiptoe just for me to help other people. And, so that was a relief, I think, for everyone. Um, and just now I'm, I'm still doing quite a lot of sessions, but nothing nothing like that number. Um, and I'm feeling the benefit of it. But that said, I mean, mindfulness practicing is, has been strong for a couple of decades. And it's helped me self-correct when I've found myself getting imbalanced and tired and or maybe grouchy or so. Um, so fingers crossed, but it's probably worth double checking with my wife on that one. Definitely. But but still, you're saying that you ca- you're still doing sessions. You mean with yourself or do you mean with groups? No, with groups. With groups. Yeah. Okay. And um, and do you also do an individual mindfulness practice at this point? Or do you, is, does, your, does that time happen when you're with the groups? No, I do. Um, what I've evolved in essence is... Uh, a philosophy of momentary mindfulness as practice and as way of living. So I mentioned about taking a sip of water. Right. To me, that's a mindful practice. Right. To If I sit down and read a book, I do it as a mindful practice. But I also still do the traditional almost closing my eyes, hands one on top of the other, um, and just noticing my breath or nothing for five, ten minutes or so. And I maybe do that three or four times a day. And I find myself doing it 
without even knowing that I've started doing it. So I'm working away on the laptop and I'm maybe writing something because I'm professionally right and I feel a little bit tired and I just end a sentence and I find myself automatically hands joining, head dipping down and I start noticing my breath and it's it's like a seamless flow from the out there work to the in here work and then back out there and it's imperfect there's lots of glitches and flaws in there but generally speaking it's a very happy contented flow of work and practice and work being practice and practice being work and work being sorry practice being family and family being practice gosh we're going to jump off here thank you we could have a whole nother discussion of how you brought art into business as well but I, I thank you for unpacking or, or walking us through some of your experiences. I find it quite beautiful. and, and um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I feel like it's a lived experience. I don't feel like you're preaching. It feels very, um, does feel in the moment when you speak, very lived. Um, so thank you, Martin. And um, we're going to put information for things where people can uh, find you now in the liner notes. And um I'm thinking we may have another interview in in us in the future. Absolutely happy to do it as and when you feel the need, Julie, and want to do it. Uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, that's today's podcast of Creative at the Wheel. Before we go, I want to invite you to check out my ongoing Friday online gathering, The Creative Cure for Anxious Times where for 75 minutes each Friday, we follow our intuition and play with pen, paper, paint, whatever creative materials you have on hand as a way of coming back into alignment with life and the moment. It's very healing and a whole lot of fun. You can also learn more about my one-on-one coaching with creatives, both on my website, paintbiglivebig.com.